0: Welcome back to Caracast, the podcast from Carasoft, the trusted government IT solutions provider. Subscribe to get the latest technology updates in the public sector. I'm Corey Baumgartner, your host from the Carasoft production team. On behalf of Fortinet Federal, we would like to welcome you to today's podcast, focused around software supply chain and Executive Order 14028 for federal agencies. Felipe Fernandez, CTO for Fortinet Federal. John Boyens, NIST Deputy Chief of the Computer Security Division, Rob Vietmeyer, DOD OCIO Director and DOD CSO for DCIO, and Clint Walker, CISA Region 4 Cybersecurity Supervisor, will discuss Software Supply Chain and Executive Order 14028 for federal agencies. So I'm Felipe Fernandez. I'm the federal CTO at Fortinet
1: Federal. Probably all know what Fortinet does. I won't get into all that. But with me here, Clint Walker, John Boyens, and Robert Vietmeyer. Uh, gentlemen, if you'd like to take a moment to introduce yourselves and what your organization does and how it could help you know, other public sector leaders, that'd be great.
2: Thank you, everybody. My name is Clint Walker. I'm with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. How many of you have heard of CISA? I'm with the federal government, and I'm here to help, so I just we'll start with that. Our role as cybersecurity advisors is to do exactly that. We are advisors to state and local governments, critical infrastructure, and private industry. We are no-cost service for you in order for you to reach out for us to come in and give you advice to help you baseline and mature your cyber organization. And that's what we're here just to be that liaison between the federal government, state and local partners, as well as vendors and suppliers to get you where you need to go and help you mature as a whole, as an ecosystem.
3: Uh John Boyans, Deputy Chief of the Computer Security Division at NIST and the program lead for cybersecurity supply chain risk management for roughly 13 years. Had a lot to do with the Executive Order 14028. NIST uh, was responsible for a big section of that, Section 4, regarding software supply chain security. Remember that, software supply chain security, contrary to the last panel, has nothing to do with the Chinese steel in our farmland. <laughs>
4: <laughs> we know who to blame, though. <laughs> Rob Vietmeyer, DOD Chief Software Officer with DOD CIO. And we have had, let's see, a DOD CIO representative, each one of these panels so far, and, and uh, Mr. Bhatia kicking it off this morning. They're all our cybersecurity team. So I'm a plant. I come from the information enterprise side, uh, so more focused on capability delivery within the CIO. But I think I have an honorary seat on the uh, with the cybersecurity team, at least for today. So thank you
1: awesome well uh you know john i think it'd be best if we led with you given your statement and disclaimer there you know and really differentiate this conversation from the last could you take a second to talk about software supply chain security risks um is it new what are the biggest challenges and risks that you're seeing you know and any guidance you have on that thought
3: yeah so i mean i guess i have been working in this space too long because 2012 RSA supply chain was new black. I think oh, oh by the way today's uh, or this month is April, which is Supply Chain Integrity Month, which is a little bit of a hallmark uh, holiday that Odie and I made up about four or five years ago. But it's still you know I like it. It's good. It gives a focus. But on uh, the the inaugural 2016 panel, I think they said uh, supply chain is sexy. So software attacks in the supply chain have been coming and going over the last you know who knows how long definitely over 10 20 years but people forget it right we had sea cleaner king slayer all these really cool names but it's a hard problem we we put minimal focus on it And then we realize it's a hard problem. And then we start justifying no action by saying, oh, if I had $10 that I could spend on security, where would I put it? Well, that's usually not supply chain. So it has come and gone. I do think that we've had a sustained focus on it the last few years. I think SolarWinds was definitely a wake up call. SolarWinds was not a Chinese company. But it did kind of put forth the and instigate the whole executive order 14028. I think one of the lessons Solar Ones kind of taught us, well, it didn't teach us. This has been a trend that's coming. But the customer and acquire relationship isn't like buying a toaster anymore in information technology, right? It's gotta be a continuous process, continuous relationship. If there is a vulnerability, even if you have and bomb, and you can go look for log4j quite often technology is so complicated you're going to have to work with those vendors that it's that relationship that is evolving also security we all know security is not 100 percent they're going to get inside so what is changing resilience systems and this is where zero trust and a lot of these other uh conversations that are happening at rsa come into being is those systems have to stay operational we're we're going to get hacked so i mean that's the vulnerability of software in general or the risk of software in general there's always going to be vulnerabilities in software
4: playing off that and in taking it to, towards you know my specialty you know software developers are lazy they'll take any shortcut they can and that usually means you know pulling down other people's software so they don't have to write it right and so now what we've seen over the you know, past couple of years is you know exponential growth in the number of attacks that are trying to go after uh, your software development environments, your software supply chains, and so when we look at you know DevSecOps, and and right now the these are complex environments that you use to develop and deliver software, and usually it's from a company's perspective, oh that's low risk, so developers just go slap some stuff together and figure it out, right? and we'll test the software at the end, we'll worry about the product we're producing, we're we'll worried about the production, that's where we'll focus security. And then you know, the level of complexity, so right now the DoD-CIO guidance that we published on DevSecOps tooling and practices, we identified you know, 55 core practices with 37 of them required. Uh, we are talking lots and lots of tools and automation that go into this. Lots and lots of new attack surfaces, and oftentimes what we see is that's relegated to the development team. Just go figure that out. They're not run as, you know, mission critical product. They're not, we're not instrumenting them. We're not from a, you know, incident detection response perspective. It's unusual to threat attacks against your CI/CD pipelines, your infrastructure, and so right now what we're seeing is like simple attacks, right? Simple attacks um, that uh, are you know now having a, a major impact as uh, malicious software, malicious code, malicious calls can be injected or into what then becomes sort of a production system. So what we see happening over or needing to happen is an increasing focus on understanding that your CI/CD pipelines, your processes for delivering, maintaining your software and your systems, increasing focus, you need to start securing them and and locking them down as if they're production systems. And so there's some growth, right? And so I think it'll be interesting to see how we make this transformation over uh, the next few years.
3: I'll have to follow on to that because part (laughs) of the executive order one of NIST's responsibilities, one of our tasks that we responded to was to develop the secure software development framework, SP800218, which per OMB 2218 is required by departments and agencies to have suppliers of software attest to. Now, that attestation form is coming out through CISA and OMB, but Just stay tuned very shortly, hopefully. But that's part of the process. So this, through the executive order, is really the first time we moved left of center into that development phase. This is good news and bad news. I mean, the good news is is that we're doing a better job of protecting our perimeters, so they're going to the supply chain. We're doing a better job of doing that, so they're going to the development side. And you know, there's supply chain attacks you can either have targeted are distributed. So they are going that distributed
4: route. Yeah, so for you out there so it's not only you going to get the, you know, deliver machine readable S bombs, it's also going to be uh machine readable SSDF attestations, right, that you're actually following uh secure uh development practices. So
1: this is going to be an interesting ride. Yeah, that's great. I do appreciate y'all's perspective. And I, I want to bring up Clint in this as well, just because, you know, the CSA organization, you get to deal with Fortune 50, Fortune 100 companies, and, and you, they have the same challenges. There's no amnesty. There's no safe haven for software supply chain risks and, and who has to mitigate them. So just wanted to, to get your, what you're seeing out there in terms of how these companies that, you know, are addressing this particular concern, you know, and there's no shortage of public sector and federal agencies that are utilizing these companies' services for something um, you know, whether that just be standard supply chain, is it shipping, you know, are you using FedEx, or are you using this? How are, how are they addressing this particular vulnerability or you know, this, this problem?
2: Well, I think that in general, I mean, that, that's the, the call that CISA is making is that we need people to come forward and join our you know, target teams, join you know, our public you know, discussions on what we're gonna do about this because it's still kind of the wild, wild west. Everybody's kind of developing their own model. We need to choose a framework and follow it kind of thing because you do have a lot of stuff going out there I mean, how many of you saw what happened with PAX in 2021 with the FBI raiding the office down in Jacksonville? It went under the radar. Nobody reported on it. It was a blip on the news. And yet, here we're talking about one of the major point of sale systems in, in the world, and they had you know, command and control and droppers embedded in their point of sale systems that they were then selling to the public or distributing to partners and vendors. How are we holding each other accountable for our software supply chain? I mean, that's the big question. Usually the answer that we get, as long as we have somebody to blame or somebody to sue, we're okay with it. But how, that's not a sustainable model, you know, real, when you really look at it, is how are we going to validate? I mean, even if we, as we put out these S-bombs, as we look at the, the VEX and stuff like that, if we have these scorecards that say, hey, yeah, there might be 200 vulnerabilities in this particular app, you know, appliance, but only 20 of them are exploitable because of the way that it's containerized, you know, we're still looking at you know, how are we going to deal with that? How are we gonna have an independent validation of that that's actually what's in there, you know. As typo squatting gets bigger, you know, I said, yeah, log4j is one of my libraries in there, but was it really log4jI, you know, because somebody grabbed from the wrong container? Are we going to have hash files in there? The the recent conference that I went to, one of the big talks was how. What do you see as the biggest impact of you know artificial intelligence and cybersecurity? And I said the biggest impact, or at least the first impact I can see, is it being able to help us with S bombs. Being able to read at machine speed what is supposed to be in an environment, whether it's there and whether it's exploitable or not exploitable. So being able to feed that SBOM information in real time as patches are being applied to say, does this change our security posture at all? I know I went a little bit off topic there. I was supposed to just be up here to make the panel look good, not actually say anything. So.
1: I think some scared people went running out of the room. (laughs) So
4: has anyone I mean, brought up uh, typo squatting, right? Has anyone run into that? Has that been detected? Or does anyone know if you're searching for that? I mean, it's like the simple stuff, right? So, right when you're building a, a system, right, your your build tool is going to go out to a bunch of different repos, repositories. M- most of them are going to be, many of them are going to be outside your organization, and it's going to pull in whatever the developer said. This is what I need to to make the build the software, right? And so, typo squatting is just someone goes out to one of these repos and and puts in a something. You know, if the developer wants foobar and they misspelled. Bar, right, there will be an attacker that's sitting there, and uh, you know these systems are dumb, right? If the company isn't watching for, you know, setting up proxies and having uh, uh, secure repos and, and understanding where their software is coming from, you know th- these tools are just going to go out there. It's going to grab the misspelled package if. If an attacker has figured out what your internal packages are called, they may place a similar named or the exactly same named in the public repo and the build system's gonna go, hey, I'm just looking for this package wherever it might exist, and it pops up and it's now in your pipeline. I mean, these are like really simple attacks that are probably the most common, right? So when we look at, at how do we get to secure top, a software development, you know, we, you know, people can throw out a lot of uh, you know, the more advanced attacks and we gotta, you know, uh, start protecting it. Um, But we could do a lot just by shutting down the simple things, right? If people are paying attention, it's relatively simple to shut these down. And that's what I think what we're gonna be looking for, you know, the work that, that CIS is doing to establish these standards for these attestations, you know, it's really gonna put pressure on companies to understand what's in their software, to represent that understanding And then to also understand better, you know, what are, what are their software development practices look like? And are there some simple things and then more, more advanced things they could be doing to uh, assure the deliveries that are coming out of their, uh, their pipelines.
1: All right, that's great. So one of the things I wanted to make sure we covered for our audience here is, you know, a particular industry potentially that is more vulnerable to these risks than others. You know, I know there's a certain level of maturity that you can expect if it's something from or the supply chain is as simple as a software vendor, you know, through a distributor to, let's say a government end user. But what if it's a conglomerate of software vendors selling to a system of systems builder, who's then putting that on a ship or an aircraft or something like that, and then that's ultimately getting to the end user. Are there particular industries that we're most concerned with being able to ensure that their software supply chain is good to go and the government may need to lend a hand there? And also for consumers in the public sector, you're using OT products and things of that nature. You know, just if you had any thoughts on that, it'd be great for them.
4: Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, as we're moving into, you know, a software-defined world, and we're, you know, at the department level, realizing that we're now in the era of software-defined warfighting, right? Our weapon systems are dependent upon software the same way, you you know, the Tesla car that you bought is not the Tesla car you're driving today, because it's continuous uh, software updates. We're finding the same thing is needed with uh, the weapon system side. So when we look at, and, you know, I was talking to someone earlier this morning, and they said, you know, that even in our own consumer goods, right, the, the internet of things is alive, right? I get emails from my ovens and stuff like that, refrigerators, it's crazy. But uh, the person I was talking to was, um, they were trying to defend a cyber attack against, you know, from their refrigerator in their house, right? Like, this is something that's gonna, I don't think it's just one industry, We've got to up our game across industries, across uh, different artifacts. I think we rely upon a lot on open source, even if you don't think you are, you most likely are. I mean, the, I think many of the surveys show that uh, most systems are about 60 to 70 percent open source, even if you think they're completely proprietary. And so, you know, I think I don't think there's one industry. I think we're we're specifically in DoD engaged very heavily right now with the weapon system folks and making sure that we're implementing. Or you know DevSecOps and secure software development practices. We're requiring, you know, going to be requiring with the CISA, and uh, and the work that we're doing internally. To, you know, requiring our our vendors to demonstrate that same level of maturity with the software that's being delivered to us. But it's going to be it's as as Mr. Bhatia mentioned this morning. I think we're learning. I think this is a partnership as we move forward. I think a lot of the companies that are here this week have some really interesting solutions that can help all of us move forward. So. I don't think it's a, we have a monopoly on this challenge.
2: I, I just want to chime in on something he said because, you know, a lot of people, when they start talking about, you know, software building materials, people immediately start talking about, hey, you know, you get that ingredient list when you're looking at a can of soup in, you know, the grocery store. And as he said, it's a lot more complicated than that because it's not just a can of soup. It's actually like more like a seven course meal that you have the ingredients list for. Yeah. And it's ever changing because you never finish the meal. The meal is constantly coming at you. The meal is constantly changing which means that your SBOM can't be a static document. It can't be something that's a snapshot in time, like we're so used to with certification and accreditation, it's a snapshot in time. SBOM has to be living. It has to be a continuous, it has to be a a culture change, a mindset that we get into saying that this is what I look like right now, and this is how vulnerable I am based on the way that applications talk to each other, that software talks to each other. Have my dependencies changed inside my application or how my application or my, my appliance talks to something else? You know, and then how do I validate that? And as he said, a lot of it's open source. How do you hold open source accountable if something goes wrong? If somebody did pull the wrong library in, or somebody forgot to close a loop on something, you know, who are you holding accountable? Like I said, you know, people always say, as long as I have somebody to sue, well, you can't sue the open source community. So how are we gonna hold each other accountable, and how are we going to, in good faith, make sure that our S bombs actually are accurate, and in real time, and actually helping us defend right now? And as he said, not really just defend, but be resilient so that as these attacks come, we can remediate quickly and then move on with, you know, securing critical infrastructure and operating as a nation.
4: Right, that good point. I mean, and we're gonna be talking about Zero Trust next, but I mean, Zero Trust has to apply against your software supply chain as well, right? I mean, like we see uh, all the time and people, um, we're gonna talk about ICAM, right? But ICAM on your development tools is usually turned over to your development team, right? And they're gonna implement, you know username passwords and assume all is good right and you are not necessarily containing the blast zone using uh, separation of duties and least privileges in the ways that we should be doing in our flow controls over our CI/CD pipelines so it's, yeah so so in the next presentation think zero trust but i've got to apply it not just in my production systems but across the my full supply chain as well oh,
1: i was so hoping you were going to say blockchain so we could hit the marketing trifecta oh, we could do blockchain <laughs> 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 any
4: any other buzzwords we can? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, no, uh, so you know, we, we talked a lot about these challenges, and one of the things I, I wanted to turn it back to you, John, was uh, you know, what are some best practices organizations can take to kind of mitigate the risk from these uh, these issues?
3: I mean, I think it's it's similar to <laughs> to general risk management. I mean, it's the it's the big K. No, right? It's it's know what your critical systems are. It's knowing what your critical components within that system are. It's knowing the technologies that you consume, the relationship between those technologies and your existing technologies. You know, one of the tasks that we had under the executive order was to define what critical software was. I'll be the first to tell you, we thought that was nuts. I mean, because critical software for us is always, critical is contextual, right? So we're just like, how are we gonna define? Well, you know, after we pounded our head through spaghetti, it was was good. Right? Because it was, it was like, we, it's software that has trust attributes, it's software that has access properties. So looking at technologies that have some of these attributes kind of gets an organization to understand where those extra critical technologies are. So it's the knowing, it's the understanding. How many organizations use technology they don't understand whatsoever and they're at risk. Going outside the boundary—it's not just those technologies inside. It's those suppliers. Know who your suppliers are. Who are your critical suppliers, right? If we have another pandemic and you can't get your supplies, what are you going to do, right? So it's—it's it's more of that understanding to be able to manage that risk. And so I mean, there, there's—you know—we did a lot of research for five or six years looking at best practices. They're out there. Uh, it's it's NISTR 8276. These are practices that every sector could use and should be using. So the, it's, it's more of an awareness, I think, right now. The, the guidance and practices are out there.
2: So I just, I want to kind of follow on, on that and say, you know, as CISA, we get called in a lot of times for incident response, we get called in for, you know, assessments on organizations. And one of the first questions that we usually ask organizations is, do you have a best baseline of expected operations? And the the look of just sheer, you know, I don't even know what you're talking about from organizations. And so, you know, what he was saying is correct. You gotta monitor what you have. You have to, number one, know what you have. You have to be able to figure out how are we gonna monitor, how are we gonna, as we're adding new applications in. And then you talk to the standard company and they're like, well, we add new applications in every single day. And we're like, well, yeah, that's gonna change your baseline of expected operations. you got to know when these things are happening. And so that's a really big part of it is, do you really know what you look like? A lot of times we get, you tell people, "When would you close an incident? When would you say you're no longer an incident responsible?" And they're like, "Well we're, we're back to steady-state operations?" And then we'll be like, "Well, we'll define steady-state operations." And they can't. Their operators or their users might be back to working as normal, but their cybersecurity team, their .IT. team, they're behind the scenes another year out trying to fix all the holes, all the things that went wrong that caused the incident in the first place. It's a year later before they close that incident because they just don't know what they have and yet they keep throwing more fuel onto the fire. They keep throwing new applications in, and nobody's really tracking what they have, what it's being used for, how it's talking, or who has access to it, whether those be external vendors, whether those be other business partners, what data's beaconing out from it. I always like to tell people, you realize that most of the, you know, suppliers out there have, you know, supply chains. So, you know, like Dell might have like Dell Federal, where we can buy because it's a trusted supply chain when we buy through Dell Federal. But why do we need Dell Federal and Dell Regular? Shouldn't Dell be telling everybody, this is what's in every component that I make? Shouldn't there be supply chain awareness no matter you know, who the partner is that you're buying from? Shouldn't we be looking at the, most, the strictest of all the rules and saying, let's apply that across the board? Everybody should be aware of what they're buying and how it's going to interact for whatever their job that they're trying to do it is. But I'll get off my soapbox on that one. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and I
4: think it goes back to, you know, the goal, and, and John, you can confirm with 1428 and S bombs, right? Was just to uh, ask folks, do they understand what's in your software? And I, you know, I know from my experience in the past, we'll ask a vendor on what's in the software. And we've had some C trolls and DIDs, and you know, they tell us here's what's in there, and then we run some of the newer and even some of the older compositional analysis tools, right? And you find out the answers really different right that there's not necessarily a common understanding of of all the software components is that's in a particular build so i i'm really excited about the new compositional analysis tools and capabilities that are you know here and demonstrating their capabilities that's going to Up the game here, and I've heard you know pushback from several, uh, several on the S bomb requirements and from industry. You know, my expectation is that they've started to run these tools and they're realizing that they had no idea what was in their software before, and they're like, wait, 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 we're going to need about another year before we can put give you an S bomb because we're going to go clean up this mess, right? That we didn't realize. I think that's part of what the pushback we're seeing. I think the the other thing that we that was kind of surprising in the work that we were doing with the Air Force, Cloud One team and Iron Bank was doing the dependency analysis in, in many of the common software packages that are used across all industry. And we found dependencies in the packages that no one had looked at or patched in like 10 years. Like everybody said, open source, it's, everybody's looking at it. But like our finding was like, I mean everybody could look at it, but not many people are, because you know, these things are being built on, you know, packages that have known vulnerabilities, have had patches in place for ten years and you know the still the old versions are being built into these into these products, right? So I think Driving visibility is, is step one. I think S bombs are going to be a game changer for folks as they start to realize what's actually in our software and we start to pay attention to it. I think it's it is only step one. You know, step two with the secure software development and, and now applying sort of the level of rigor across our supply across our CI C D pipelines and supply chains is gonna be uh, you know the next game changer here.
1: Yeah, just a uh, oh, go ahead, you. Yeah. Oh,
3: no, I, I, mean, I would add that that's right. I mean, SBOM isn't a silver bullet. I actually thought it was a little bit aspirational to put it in, inside an executive order, but I actually think that's a good thing because we, you know, executive order follows <laughs> follows on solar winds. We're always pounding that, you know, the, the, the next mold that pops up. And to try to get a hold of that with something aspirational, I think is a good thing. So it's it's out there, but it isn't a silver bullet. Even even if organizations can meet the minimum requirements, it's part of an overarching vulnerability management program. And if you don't have that in place, an SBOM is going on the shelf until you have an incident and need to go look for a log4j, right? Where, where we want to go, step three or four, is actually being able to use S-bombs and VEX in a proactive manner, right? So that we can get, a, get ahead of those vulnerabilities, start managing the risks those vulnerabilities cause. Yeah,
1: that's great. Uh, you know, one of the things I like to do with these settings is make sure that the audience leaves with not only a, a bunch of questions that they gotta go find answers to, but also a, a next step, right? You know, how do I wrap my head around this quickly? And, and one of the things that I'm hoping any one of you can answer is, Is there a framework, is there a guidance, a policy document that states, okay, you want to tackle this secure software supply chain issue? Here is a program you can get started with, and also here are some quantitative or uh, other types of, you know, ways of, you know, measuring your progress throughout this journey. Is there something out there, a, a document such as that, or, you know, are there examples that you've seen from organizations who have put their use case out there?
2: Well, I'll say that CISA just released two documents on Friday that kind of explain SBOM and our take on it, and then, you know, what a VEX looks like and how that is actually going to be the supplement to the SBOMs to help people understand what vulnerabilities exist, but then which ones are actually exploitable. And for us, I mean, we really just, we need people to to jump on, go out to CISA's website and look for the SBOM working group. We need your input. You know, how is SBOM going to affect you or impact you or what? You know we don't want it to be scary for you we want you to be prepared for whatever's coming down the pipe and so we want your input and your analysis now yeah well i think the you know guidance that's going to be coming out from
4: CISA on the implementation of SBOM, the work we're doing with the far to incorporate those business rules in dod we're also looking at some updated dids and seed rolls to get us to SBOM deliverables in some formats that we're doing so stand by for some of that i think that you know the next step is then moving to that secure software development side of things and what that looks like so i know there's uh, some guidance on what that those attestations look like we are talking with some of the early industry partners on that have been attempting to implement this so we understand the the level of complexity that this entails, and the level of process change in many large organizations and even smaller organizations, so it's a universal challenge that we're facing. I think the executive order and the work that uh, CISA and NIST are doing are, are describing that raised the bar for us. I'm hoping we can find that the automation, some of the newer newer tooling, uh, some of the AI that's evolving, can make this a whole lot easier as we move forward. But you know, it's going to be a new new journey.
3: I'll just put a plug in, following on our work with SB800218, the Secure Software Development Framework, we initiated a project in the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, looking at DevSecOps, uh, looking at proprietary builds, looking at OSS. We're moving along there, but if folks want to keep tracking of it, we have a community of interest, just kind of Google NIST and NCCOE and uh, DevSecOps.
0: Thanks for listening, and thank you to our guests, Felipe Fernandez, John Boyans, Rob Vietmeyer, and Clint Walker. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe to Caracast, and be sure to listen to our other discussions. If you'd like more information on how Fortinet Federal can assist your organization, please visit www.carasoft.com or email us at rsamarketing Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.